0: Welcome. This is the Sydney Ideas Podcast, bringing you talks and conversations featuring the best and brightest minds at the University of Sydney and beyond. The moment I heard about the story behind this, I was really excited. When I was then asked if I could come along and help present the event, I totally lost it. This is really interesting what we're looking at this evening. We I mean artificial intelligence, right? Artificial intelligence, incredible, right? Netflix somehow knew that I would love that doco series, Cheer about the cheerleaders in the United States, Team Navarro, Rock, how, how did they know? That's incredible, right? Artificial intelligence knows the right ads to send me in the metaverse to get me buying stuff. I never even knew that I didn't really want, but I buy it because it's colors that I just go, oh, that it's learned from, that's, that's, a, that's incredible, right? But what about the intersection of artificial intelligence and humans who are thinking at the truly elite level? Right. Can artificial intelligence inspire and contribute to the cutting edge of pure mathematics? Right Now, you might think in my capacity as ambassador for mathematics and science at the University of Sydney, I'd be the right person to answer this question. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm a public mathematician. Uh, I, I love math. I talk a bit about Mathematics. I was on the radio just the other day um, giving a mathematician's interpretation of the question that everyone's asking: Are there more wheels or doors in the world? Right? Well, if you listen to if you listen to Fox FM in Brisbane with Fifi, Nick, and Fev, you would have heard my thoughts about that on Wednesday morning. And and during the course of that, Brenda Vivala, former AFL superstar, had cause to call me a maths genius. Thank you so much Brendan, you're just not qualified to make that assessment. <laughs> My friend, I like to say in a room of randomly selected people, I'm a maths genius. Right? In a room of maths PhDs, I'm as dumb as a box of hammers. But we are lucky to have here this evening Someone who qualifies by any definition you want. Too modest, you know, wilting as I'm saying it, of maths genius. Some of you, I know we've got some members of the University of City maths community here tonight, which is great, and other people who, who, who aren't as close to the world of mathematics. You might be surprised to know that Australia has actually produced several people who, whenever there's a discussion in the world at the moment of who's the best mathematician in the world, almost by definition a question you can't really answer, there are several Young Australians who are regularly coming up in those conversations. And this guy is one of them. A few years ago, when he was appointed to the Royal Society, he was the youngest person appointed to the elected to the Royal Society. Not strictly the youngest member of the Royal Society, because there was a guy called Prince William who sort of runs it. Um, who is sort of there with little asterisks against his name, no offence to the wonderful work he does. At the age of just, I think it was 36, elected to one of the world's most prestigious and longest continually running assembly of scientists. And his passion is mathematics and a few other things he's going to tell us about tonight. But in particular, he's been looking at the cutting edge of mathematics and artificial intelligence and where it intersects. So without further ado, but pointing out that once we're done, we will take some of your questions preferably via the social media. Hashtag Sydney Ideas on Twitter or go into Slido. I'll explain how that works a little bit later. Love to have your questions, but more importantly, I'm gonna ask him some questions once we hear from, how about you gave me a round of applause. That was ridiculous. This guy's the star of the show. So let's give it up for Professor Jordy Williamson. Yeah! <laughs> yours, buddy.
1: So thank you very much for coming. I'm very excited to talk about what I'm talking about today. So the basic question that I want to discuss today is, can neural nets attack tough problems? So neural nets are part of machine learning. And machine learning over the last 15 years has had numerous breakthroughs. But typically, these breakthroughs have been on problems which humans find intuitive or easy. So the classic example is image recognition. You can also think about speech recognition. You might think about something like machine translation. The remarkable thing about this technology is that we don't tell the computer how to do the task. We tell the computer how to learn to do the task. The computer learns and, in many cases, is wildly successful, you know, as Adam suggested with these suggestions that you get on Netflix. It's also sometimes not so successful, as you've probably also experienced on, on Netflix. What I'm talking about today is work with the London-based AI lab DeepMind, where we tried to use neural nets to attack difficult problems in pure mathematics. So this is kind of the polar opposite of immediately recognizing an image. These are problems that we've been thinking about for about, you know, 40 years or something like that. They're very difficult problems. Humans have been thinking about them for a long time without making any progress whatsoever. So before I tell you about that, I need to tell you what a neural net is. And before I tell you about that, I just want to convince you that our visual capacity is extraordinary. And I find the question of kind of analyzing what happens when you look at an image very illustrative for what neural nets do. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you an image. And I want you to... A, employ a bit of metacognition. So, what happens in your brain when you see this image? Recognize what you see, when you see it, and how much time you need. Okay. So, you've probably almost taken the whole image in. There's a man, there's a tightrope or slack line. there's the sea below, there's the cliffs. You've picked up this immediately and you can see the water sucking off the shelf. You can imagine the turbulent waves below. It's absolutely remarkable. You've just done that in under a second. All this processing has taken place. And you might even be worried uh, what happens if he falls. And this is what happens when he falls. Notice you've picked up immediately what's going on. He's wearing a harness. There's a rope. There's a knot. So this is absolutely remarkable what what our brains do effortlessly. Now, when I was a teenager, I tried to write a little program to try to classify what a photo is of. So I had some little stick figure images, and I wanted to say, like, this is a person, and this is a cat, and things like that. And I failed abjectly at this task. It's really hard to write a program to do this. And I want to try to just explain to you very quickly why this is so hard for a computer. So here's another image. Now we have a tiger. Notice again how quickly you see the whiskers, the fur. You immediately know it's a tiger. Now this is an image on a computer. And so it's basically a list of pixels, a long list of pixels. So now I want to zoom in just left of the eye of the tiger. And you can see at this scale that basically it's it's very unclear what we're looking at. Now remember that each one of these pixels is a single grayscale value. So it's given to the computer as a number between 0 and 255 where zero is white and 255 is black, and all the numbers in the between are the shades of gray. And so this is what the picture actually looks like. So for a computer, if you look at an image, everything looks like a scene out of the matrix. And yet, we, when we perceive this image, we're immediately able to ascribe meaning to it. So if we zoom back out again, you can see that there's 10 million pixels in this whole image. And yet, your brain is able to instantaneously see what's going on. And I think when you start thinking about this, you can start convincing yourself that it might be very difficult to write a program that says Tiger or not Tiger on a computer. You've got to take in 10 million numbers and somehow do some kind of processing of these numbers and decide whether it's Tiger or not. So how does our brain do it? The short answer is there's many mysteries. And a disclaimer is that I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a mathematician, and essentially everything that I'm going to tell you is gleaned from Wikipedia and my friends. So I'm not an expert. I just want to give you a very vague understanding of what's going on. So our visual cortex is right here at the back of the head. So for some reason, the visual cortex is as far away from the eyes as is kind of possible in the brain, which is interesting. And if you look at the visual cortex, there's a whole lot of neurons. So it's basically a a big, complicated network of neurons. This is a very, very beautiful image by one of the first neuroscientists, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who When he was a child, he wanted to be a painter and an artist. His dad forced him to do something more sensible, but he was always interested in art, and he produced the most incredibly beautiful drawings of neurons, hundreds and hundreds of drawings that still inspire neuroscientists today. So this is a picture of a neural net from the brain of a child. So if we zoom in, you can see that the neural net, you have a whole lot of neurons, and you'll notice this thick little globule, which is the soma, and into the soma come the dendrites. And what happens is that charge arrives at the dendrites, and then that charge is summed up, so it's added up, and then when it reaches a certain threshold, something happens. So nothing happens for a while. When it reaches a certain threshold, boom, your neuron fires, and what happens then is very complicated. It's probabilistic. It depends on the particular neuron, and there's a very strong temporal aspect to it. There's these crazy oscillations that take place, you know, different neurons behave in different ways. So it's all very complicated, but I just want you to have that one picture in mind. Nothing happens until charge reaches a certain level, and then something happens. It's very important. And if we look at the brain as a big object, so there's something like 86 billion neurons, which is just an incomprehensibly large number in our brain, and it's a remarkable picture that modern neuroscientists gives us. We just have these basically little building blocks so that we understand very well, these neurons. And they're all hooked up in a very complicated manner. And there's a lot of different varieties of them. But basically, everything is kind of emergent. So it's a little bit like a chess game. You have simple moves that you can do, and yet the complexity of the chess game is enormous. So something similar is going on in our brain. Also, you know, I think if you're interested, just to look at, Carmoni Carral's images is really inspiring. He has hundreds of really beautiful images of the brain and the spinal cord and things like this. Okay, so if you're uh, a computer scientist or a mathematician, it's tempting to try to make a simple model of what a neural net might look like. And this is what people did starting in the 1950s. So they came up with something called a perceptron. Now, a perceptron is a simple mathematical model of a neuron. And I promise there'll be two formulas in this talk, and this is one of them. The x, y, and z are a model of the charge entering the neuron. So the charge is summed. So we add up x, y, and z. If this number is positive, we keep this number. If it's negative, we replace this number with zero. So it's an incredibly simple model of a neuron. And it has this same characteristic that a neuron has, that nothing happens, boom, until something happens. But all of the complexity of neuron firing is thrown out the window. It's a very simple model. And when we look at the brain, different amounts of neurons fire in different ways and with different intensities. And so we alter the perceptron a little bit by adding weights. So what those weights mean are that, for example, in this this case, we would say that the information coming from Z is much more important than the information coming from X. And I'll indicate this in drawings by a different thickness of line. So there's more stuff going along the red line than going along the green line. These are the weights. And all this does to our firing pattern is it alters the slope of the line, and it also alters the point at which that line leaves the x-axis. So this is an incredibly simplistic model of a neuron. This is how we build an artificial neural net. We just put together a whole lot of these very simple models of a neuron. It's that simple. And we train our neural net by initially having random assignments of weights. So we don't give any neuron any particular importance in the schema. And then we train it. So we have input, which might be, for example, an image, and then an output, which might be positive if it's a tiger and negative if not. And we want that output to be as close as possible to reality. So as close as possible to our understanding of, is there a tiger in the image or not? So I want to show you a neural net training. I'm about to press play on a video. So this is a screenshot of a wonderful little playground for visualizing neural nets, which you can play with in your browser. So the most important aspect here is on the right-hand side, you see a square, and you see the blue dots and the orange dots. So this is the training training data. Okay? So this will not move while we train. This is the reality that we're trying to mimic. And then we have the shading, which is the result of the neural net. So at the moment, the neural net is performing very badly because there's very little relation between blue shading and blue dots and orange shading and orange dots. Now I want to show you it training. Here we go. So you notice now it's kind of learnt, in inverted commas, where the blue dots are. So there's a perfect matching between the blue shading and where the blue dots are. So this is a trained model. How did we do this training? What we did is we wiggled our weights on our neurons. We wiggled the thicknesses of our neurons. And if the result improved, then great, if it didn't, we take back that step. And so, that's a bit of a simplification And if you actually want to know how we train these neural nets, you should come to Sydney Uni and do calculus and linear algebra. It's really like the first year courses that we teach is the background of this training. It's very basic, beautiful, but basic maths. Now I want to show you another instance training on the same problem. You see it's trained kind of in a similar time. I'll show you another instance, but now I want you to concentrate on the neural net itself. And what you'll see—it's difficult to see—but you'll see that there's slight fluctuations in the edge weightings as it's training. You'll notice some are becoming thinner, some are becoming thicker. That's what's happening during training. So it's kind of incredibly simple thing. Yeah, we make this like rough model of a brain, and then we just fiddle with it until the performance is good. So now I'll show you a complicated training happening. So this is a much more complicated data set. So we have a spiral, and what we want is a function that's. We want the orange area to follow that orange spiral and the blue area to follow the blue spiral. It's much more complicated, so I need my neural net to be more complicated. And now this takes much longer to train. So up the top you see the epochs. So this is the number of wiggles we've done of the training parameters. And you can see it kind of struggling to train. And here you see some very, in, very interesting uh, facets of what happens in training in general. Namely, you have these long plateaus of very little activity and then sudden improvements. And then occasionally you'll see these spikes where it kind of goes backwards in order to improve, which I think, it's always dangerous to make these kind of statements, but it it seems to be what happens when we learn. We have these long periods of kind of not much happening and then suddenly we get a concept and sometimes we feel like we go backwards in our learning. So you can see uh, above the square you have the output and you have this test loss and training loss. So this is saying how well the model is doing. This is a difficult task and so it doesn't quite manage it, but it doesn't do do too badly. Now, it's very important because I'm using these analogies between the brain and neural nets that I include the following slide. A brain is not an artificial neural net in the same way that a bird is not a plane. And a very good friend of mine who's a neuroscientist in Singapore with whom I love to discuss this stuff tells me that there's some belief in neuroscience that a neuron might be something like a feather. So this is a beautiful thing that evolution has produced, but it may not be strictly necessary for flight. Okay, so this is a very potted history of the subject of machine learning. So in 1958, we had the first perceptron. This was made on a very, uh, very early computer, a trainable perceptron. And it took almost 50 years until we saw a really solid application on a problem that people cared about. Namely, image recognition in 2006. And then in 2010, um, we've had this kind of complete revolution in the field. And now, you know, this is right throughout Google, Facebook, et cetera, Um, you know, serving ads, translating language. Also, in areas where you just have it, you're just absolutely overwhelmed by the amount of data available to you. So, for example, searching through legal records or things like this. I also think that this is a very interesting example of the importance of supporting fundamental research. We had this 50-year period where nothing was really viable. I mean, in this particular subfield of machine learning. I remember when I was a graduate student, someone told me what a neural net was. I thought the idea was stupid. This was before neural nets took off. I thought, how can such a simple-minded, simplistic thing do amazing things? But what I totally underestimated was this extraordinary thing that happens at scale in in neural nets. We owe this extraordinary technology to 50 years of curiosity and 50 years of people plugging away during these AI winters where no one believed in what they were doing. Now I've explained what neural nets are, I hope. (laughs) I want to now turn to the problem of can neural nets actually solve difficult problems or can they help us solve Really difficult problems, and the first overwhelming evidence that the answer to this question is yes came in 2016 with the game of Go. So the game of Go is the oldest continuously played board game on Earth. It was arose about two two and a half thousand years ago in China. It's played on this 19 by 19 grid, and players alternately lay white and black stones. And there's only two rules. So absolutely beautiful in its simplicity, the game of Go. And yet the game of Go is orders of magnitude more complicated than chess. So chess is a very complicated game, as I'm sure you all know. And in chess, the number of board positions is roughly the same as the number of atoms in the Earth. In Go, the number of board positions is vastly larger than the number of atoms in the universe. And I had a very good friend in in graduate school who was one of the best European Go players. He was incomparably bad compared to the East Asian Go players, but he was still very good in Europe. And he just spent basically a decade convincing me that computers would never solve Go. And they were very, very bad until neural nets came along and until DeepMind came along. So there was this very famous challenge match in 2016 between Lee Sedol playing the, f- the first move of this challenge match against DeepMind, against the computer, this five series match was remarkable for many reasons. So AlphaGo won, but AlphaGo, so AlphaGo is the computer program. Lee Sedol is the, one of the best human players. AlphaGo won four games to one, and Lee Sedol won one game. And it's so beautiful to see him after he wins one game. He feels that this is some kind of redemption for humanity. Uh, And I think, in some sense, it is. And they were very tightly fought matches. Another extraordinary thing about this story is that following AlphaGo, DeepMind released AlphaZero, which has no human knowledge of the game put into it. All it knows are the rules. And it plays itself billions and billions and billions of times and gets better and gets better even than AlphaGo. The thing that I find the most interesting about this, and this blew me away in 2016, is that alpha go played certain moves which appeared to display a deep human understanding of the game so there's this famous move in game two called move 37 and it's lovely if you get a chance watch this on youtube lisa doll sees the move and you can see a kind of surprise and amusement on his face and he then takes 12 minutes to play play his move which is much longer than he normally plays And after, so he lost this match convincingly, largely thanks to this extraordinary move that AlphaGo played. And he said, after the match, he said, yesterday I was surprised, today I'm speechless. I remember at the time thinking, like, imagine if we could play such a move in mathematics. Because this move has changed the way that humans play Go. It fundamentally went against the traditional wisdom of playing Go. Imagine if we could do something like that in mathematics. So in 2018, Demis Hassabis, who is the CEO of DeepMind and one of the main figures behind the AlphaGo's victory, was elected to the Royal Society, the oldest national scientific society in the world. That year I was also elected, and here's a picture of the uh, Antipodean FRSs from that year. So you notice Michelle Simmons, who was at that time Australian of the Year, and you'll also notice Elon Musk who has a much better suit than anyone else. I remember, so this was one of the most inspiring events that I've ever been to. So you go to London and you have the best scientists in the world explaining what they're excited about. And you have these coffee breaks and you can talk to anyone. And there was this just ring around Elon Musk the whole time. And I wasn't interested in talking to Elon Musk and I really wanted to talk to Demis Hassabis because I was so interested in what he did with AlphaGo and I was so fascinated by the possibility of using machine learning in mathematics. So we had many conversations over coffee. It was kind of Demis and me and then this massive cluster around Elon. We decided to try to do something together. So we worked initially, so there was a project with two mathematicians at Oxford that I'll talk about in a second, and we worked on a program around Kajanlitzik polynomials, which is something very dear to my heart. This is something that I've thought about for my entire kind of mathematical career. Firstly, I need to tell you what a polynomial is, so you probably... Half of you know what a polynomial is. If you don't, for the purposes of this talk, you can think about a polynomial as just being a packet of numbers. So in this particular case, the packet of numbers is 1, 3, 7, and 2. Okay, So it's not that complicated. kajdan lutzig polynomials are some kind of atomic numbers of mathematical structure. So imagine that someone gives you the periodic table and says, here, here's the periodic table. You'd be like, great, you know, I know all the elements. But Imagine that they don't tell you how elements go together to form molecules, or they don't tell you things like atomic number or weight of an element or something. It's not very useful information. What Carlitsch Polynomials do is provide that kind of atomic number information in mathematical structures that we call representations. So you can think of it as some kind of fine-grained periodic table information in the mathematical sciences. And these polynomials are extremely important and mysterious, and I could try to explain what they are, but instead I'll just show you some nice videos. So, here's um, kajianalistic polynomials evolving on a triangular lattice. And you can see as we move out, so as we move out, what we're doing is kind of describing atoms in an enormous molecule. You can think about it like that. Here's another example where we specialize the the q to 1, if that means anything to you and you can see these absolutely beautiful patterns emerging as we as we look at these large mathematical structures so they're very beautiful objects in mathematics very mysterious and there's a famous conjecture which I've been interested in since I was a graduate student called the combinatorial invariance conjecture this is a conjecture that was made in the early 80s so it's over four decades old and people have thought very hard about this conjecture over the years And what it says is that we have this fundamental measurement called a Karshan-Lutzig polynomial, so basically just a row of numbers, and we have this very complicated but kind of directly related to our problem a graph, an enormous graph. And I remember when I was talking to Demis, I kind of imagined, like, imagine if this graph was some very complicated image. Could we immediately say kind of tiger or not tiger? One way of thinking about this is kind of imagine that you know, in our evolutionary history, for some extremely weird reason, we'd been encountering Bruja graphs a lot and not tigers, or maybe tigers and Bruja graphs, would we be able to instantly say what the kajdan polynomials are? So I should say that these graphs are just absolutely incredibly enormous. So I've always been fascinated by this conjecture, but I haven't had any way into the conjecture. So what did we do? We trained a graph neural net on this problem. So a graph neural net is a fascinating thing. Basically, you take your graph and you kind of pretend it's giving the the neuron structure of the brain and then you try to train it. So I'm lying slightly, but not too much. And very quickly, it did remarkably well, kind of shockingly well for me. I was totally new to these techniques. Then we did something called attribution techniques. So if people are interested, I can talk about this more during the question session. But basically, the question is, what is, you're trying to ascertain what is the model actually looking at and it was able to point out new aspects of the problem that we hadn't hadn't seen that were very surprising, deeply surprising for me. So at the same time, in parallel to our work, the team at Oxford were able to develop a new formula in knot theory using very similar techniques. And because we'd used kind of a very basic technique in machine learning on very difficult problems in mathematics, we were able to publish our result in Nature in December 2021 so here's our conjecture yeah so it's obvious to everyone yeah the q derivative of the karshan polynomial is a simple power of q times the sum over subsets of the hypercube decomposition q to the inverse minus one to some very natural power times inductively computed karshan polynomial plus an inductive term hmm? no worries i want to show you this conjecture because it's very interesting I, the second term the plus and then the funny sigma sign makes sense to me and this is what experts in the field expect. The first term was what came out of machine learning. Our, the kind of human and computer contributions to this problem were distinct. And they added up to give the answer, which I think is very beautiful. Neural nets were able to give us clues, but we still needed months of work to try to digest what they were pointing out. So this is one way of saying that I'm not yet out of a job. The insights gained from neural nets were rather different to the insights that we as experts expect from the problem. So it seems to be giving us something of a very different nature to what happens when I talk to a collaborator, for example. I love to think about intelligence as being some kind of interesting high dimensional space. So we have academic intelligence. We might have emotional intelligence. We might have, I don't know, other other intelligences that we see all around us. But I really feel that machine learning is kind of giving us a new axis. And that's what I find so exciting about it. I think it'll be a very exciting decade for using machine learning on tough problems in science. So thank you very much.
0: Great wonderful, wonderful. What a, what a great exploration. What a brilliant explanation of some challenging subject matter for the rest of us. And uh, a couple of tips on if you do ever get elected to the Royal Society as well. I love that, just the way said, if you're ever elected to the Royal Society, realistically, we won't be, you were. <laughs> and it all came about from that. What was the first chat with Dennis? How did that happen? I love the personal side of this. You meet Dennis at the Royal Society. Was he already looking to do work in yeah, this space? Yeah, I think
1: Dennis came up to me and said, I'm really looking forward to your talk, and I said, I, I'm really in awe of what you've done with AlphaGo and I've been thinking about what what we could be doing with this in mathematics. And I think that a lot of mathematicians feel some kind of resistance to these ideas. I feel like some people kind of treat maybe computer science as a poor cousin and I hate this attitude. I think that what what is happening in computer science is just unbelievable. And yeah, and so I guess we started discussing and we were literally like, he was like, you know, do you think we can solve the Riemann hypothesis? And I was like, no, I don't think so.
0: Just quickly, Uh, for for people who have not heard of the Riemann hypothesis, you're talking famously challenging, remarkably complex, as difficult as anything floating around. Yeah, like the largest
1: open problem in mathematics by far, the most important. So he's really
0: shooting for the the stars (laughs) when he says that one. You say?
1: I say, uh, I mean, I'd love to work on it if I can see an honest way into this problem, but I could not. And I explained why I... You know, I said, well, if you have an idea, I'm happy to think about it, but I don't see any idea. Um, and then we slowly settled on things where we did have an idea. And then we had a number of telephone conversations. I suggested he talk to Mark and Andrush in Oxford. That went well. We kept talking. I also talked to um, Alex Davies at DeepMind who's was in charge of the maths team, and um, and the work evolved.
0: What I'd like to try and drill down in, and, and probably best for a lot of the audience by analogy and things like that as much as you're comfortable that you're not watering it down to the point where it's not the truth. I want to try and get my head around the nature of the insights that the neural network provided. So, first of all, in 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 the in the go game we saw an example of one brilliant unbelievable move. Was there a moment that was a brilliant un was was it analogous in any way to that, or did did what the the network coming was more just sheer grunt run over millions and millions of cases you could never have considered, or
1: no, it's definitely not sheer grunt. So sheer grunt is what computers usually do for us mathematicians. Hmm. You know, do a, do a thousand examples, check a conjecture, something like that. Whereas this was very different. Alex would show me plots of so when we train a model, as you, as you saw you know, it wiggles around and then you get some result. But what's really interesting is that often we cannot understand what the model is actually doing. So it's a little bit like if you learn a skill, that skill is not readily transferable to the person next to you. So by the way, the person on the unicycle is sitting here and you know, he has this skill of riding a unicycle on a highline. He cannot immediately transfer that skill to me. It's very similar in, in neural nets. Um, And what we did was do attribution techniques. So this is a little bit like, imagine that I have a a model that's very good at telling me whether there's a tiger or not in an image. So what I can say to the model is, what happens if I mess with this bit of the image? Do you still think it's a tiger? And the model says, yes. And then I say, well, I don't think that's the tigerness bit of this image. Whereas I mess with another bit, and then the model says, no, that's not a tiger anymore. Then I could say, oh, hang on a second. You know, I, I've I've pin you down model, you're looking at that bit and that's what's telling me it's a tiger. You know? And so what we did on these enormous graphs is we started doing these this called saliency analysis and it started showing me these kind of remarkable subgraphs that I'd never considered before. And so it's showing me like, you know, within this enormous complicated thing that I cannot imagine, it's showing me pieces that I can imagine.
0: Had you, when you say these subgraphs, I hadn't seen... Think- did you know these subgraphs existed, you'd seen them, you hadn't thought they were important, or it was giving you an insight into the structure of this graph you did not have before?
1: No, it's saying like, look look here, Geordie, and I was like, why should I look there?
0: So you knew that bit was already there, it, the importance of it had not clicked in your mind.
1: Yeah, so I, I mean, you know, there's a zillion subgraphs there, some are more important than others, and the model is telling me this particular one is very important. It's sort of going... <coughs> Yeah, exactly. Warmer, warmer, yeah. colder, warmer, warmer. <laughs> exactly. Okay. And it's really, I mean it's 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 an incredibly disconcerting experience because you know, I'm a human and there's these massive deep mind team and these big computers and they're telling me that something's very important and I'm like, oh geez, got to keep my end up here. <laughs> <laughs> and I was re- like it was a very kind of psychologically tough process when I just couldn't explain what the hell this model was looking at. So when it finally started to make sense it was um a beautiful experience and this was months by the way
0: yeah so on, on, on the topic of time and so DeepMind. i mean the, the, the resources they have were you running their system absolutely at capacity to get the results you had or
1: absolutely not so DeepMind has access to i don't know all the all of google's supercomputers essentially so they have enormous computational resources and on for alpha go for example they were using i don't know very, very large numbers of computers, but everything that we were doing was very simple, so you could do it on one or two laptops. Um, it's, it's not computationally difficult in any in any way.
0: Hypothetically, if, if we'd had the full resources at it, your command, you said this took a long time. Would the system have come back to you in half a minute and said, "I think you should look here. This is this is sorted," and still would have taken you? How, how would the, how would the situation have been different if you'd thrown a thousand times? the grunt at it?
1: Yeah, there would have been no difference whatsoever. Because the computer already, you know, did what it could do. um, And then I had to solve it.
0: When you say the humans made a contribution, the computers made a contribution, quite distinct contributions, (laughs) (laughs) 50-50? Does it make sense to ask, can you quantify the magnitude of the two contributions?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I would say that humans are more than 50 you um, would
0: say that <laughs> if I asked the network
1: <laughs> yeah I'd go with 70 30 and I hope the network would agree but
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, when you say they were quite distinct con- tell us more about that and what, what do you mean they were quite distinct contributions you, you touched on it
1: yeah I mean like it in that formula there's like you know essentially a equals b plus c and B, we're still, trying to under, we're still trying to understand. We haven't gotten to the bottom of B, whereas C is totally obvious for us. But the computer was the thing that suggested B, and it didn't suggest C. And so it's really kind of complementary insights.
0: If you want to hit us with any questions, and a couple have come in, how would you recommend someone over 30 years old with only high school calculus learn more about AI, Jordy?
1: Come to our wonderful seminar called Machine Learning for the Working Mathematician. Also, uh, in seriousness, there's a zillion YouTube tutorials. I mean, it's like an an incredibly learnable subject if you want to spend the time. Um, There's tutorials at absolutely every level of expertise. Um, It's a massive subject, so there's a lot of resources out there.
0: Someone asked, how can the community of pure mathematicians more readily accept the use and role of machine learning for research? It's interesting, you said some people think computer science, that's over there. Um, I know. I know when they talk about driverless cars, for example, people say just eventually the stats on accidents and deaths and all that will just compel you to accept it. Uh, it will it just eventually be the contribution that these sort of networks, etc., make to the field is something that just there's no point denying their their validity and magnitude.
1: I think that we're at a very interesting point with machine learning in mathematics, and particularly like, as a tool, rather than as a source of problems, in that there's very few people doing it. Like, I don't know, I can count on one hand the researchers doing this, doing this work in mathematics. Um, sorry, in pu- like in pure mathematics, so using it as a tool to attack problems. And so we talk about this as a kind of inevitable march. You know, the computers will take over. You know, I don't see it as a, at all as inevitable. There might be something about intelligence that we are just missing in these models. I think that it's great that we play around with this stuff and see what it's useful for, but I don't see it as kind of inevitable acceptance that computers will take over our field.
0: But amongst your contemporaries, I presume that's not the 100% unanimous view. I got the impression, reading one article about this work, that some people are saying... Humans will always do the creative brilliance here. Machines will help push us in certain directions and get rid of a lot of the wasted time on that. Others are going. This is so clearly the first step towards AI solving everything, and we will be redundant. Is it fair to say that even in the elite of mathematics, people sit everywhere?
1: Oh, absolutely. On yeah. that that's, spectrum, that's very fair. Yeah.
0: Where does where is the consent? The majority of opinion, or is it a completely open question at the moment?
1: Ah uh, that's a good question. I'd say most people are skeptical still there's some people that are oh you know it's inevitable some people are much more skeptical uh, the majority of people are more skeptical I would say
0: take us inside your for people who have not you know pushed the very boundaries pure mathematically so take us inside your mind when when the, the this system is you know suggesting things that you haven't thought about yet is that then a okay, I'm gonna take that away for a fortnight and just smash my head against it and hope I get some insight? Or was there, as they say, those eureka aha moments where you suddenly, something just exploded in your mind as obviously true? Was it a slow process of accretion or were there little bumps and then step jumps in? I think
1: in this particular project, there was an enormous, we tried so many things that didn't work. And so we really like week by week, we tried something that didn't work. And you're just like, it's going on for months and you don't see any kind of way through this impasse. Uh, And always there was this plot that I showed in the second last slide that was just haunting me the entire time. Like I just couldn't get out of my head and this was the plot that ended up leading to a solution. I've had kind of eureka moments in the past, but this was definitely not a eureka moment. It was more like a war of attrition.
0: Got a really good question here from OP. Graphs, especially the way you've explained them here, seem particularly amenable as structures for neural nets to yield deep insights compared to say prime numbers they've suggested what are what makes some structures more compatible with ai than others at this stage is is that within with all the sort of questions that pure mathematicians are considering are there some that are a lot more ripe for this sort of work at the moment
1: yeah so that's a great question and absolutely as op said there's graphs are great discrete structures are great you need enormous amounts of data. Yeah, you need some kind of continuous learning landscape, which is so. For example, there's many problems that I think about where you only have a single, you know, you can work out a single example or a few examples, and this is just you can't start, you can't get anywhere with this with machine learning. So you need a lot of examples, a big set of data, and you need some kind of discreteness to the problem. Um, but I think we're still learning wh- which problems are amenable to these techniques and which are not
0: you talk about a, a new sort of intelligence tell me more about that what do you mean what's what's on that at, at this early stage what's on that access ac- access of of computer intelligence or ai intelligence
1: yeah i i guess it's just a feeling i have many collaborators some of them they say what i expect some of them say something so wacky it just blows my mind i remember one collaborator interrupted a very intense mathematical discussion to show me a Russian animation of a hedgehog lost in the fog. Mm -hmm. And I was like, where on earth did that come from? I've got no idea. I still don't know. Um, And it's that kind of quality of suggestion that I feel like the computers were were giving us. They're just really wacky things that, um, that you really don't expect. The not theorists were getting a whole lot of proposals, and they were getting some proposals that were obvious to them. Whereas I never got any, anything where I was like, oh, you know, that's clear. It was always kind of a bit off the wall, wall suggestions.
0: When we talked about, uh, you know, there are some great Aust- Australian mathematicians and there was one who was recently honored with uh, something called the Fields Medal, sometimes called the equivalent of the Nobel Prize for Mathematics and reflecting when he won that, he said, it, it, he was giving a speech and said, there's, there's, it's lovely to have a night like this when I'm recognized. And this quote that stuck with me because as an elite mathematician, I spend ninety nine percent of my time being wrong. And I thought, one and I'd love your insights, one, it must take a particular sort of mind to be able to do that, to be wrong ninety nine percent of the time and just keep going and going. Well, first of all, is it is is it did you do you relate to that quote?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. I, I mean, not necessarily wrong, but stuck. Um, yeah, I spend my entire life stuck. And also, I mean, I've really like worked for ten years on a single problem. You know, like I, I kind successfully. Of, yeah, in, well, in one case, successfully, yeah.
0: And in '99, unsuccessful. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and along the way, you kind of write papers because you need, you know, you need a job and things like that. But you're very much um, solely focused on one thing with absolute obsession and. Yeah, and that's a very interesting psychological process to go through.
0: So yeah. even if these machines, you know, there are debates about will they become intelligent? I want to ask you a couple of questions about that soon. But even if, if the only role that these sort of machines, that these networks played was to reduce the amount of things you might look at that are clearly not right, no, no disrespect intended, to shut off dead ends well before you get there, if, if you were suddenly right or wrong only 97% of the time, that suddenly means it's like we've got three Geordie Williamson's running around out there, doesn't it? I mean, it can't... Yeah, could, absolutely. Could, could, these, I, these I totally agree, yeah. could make profound impact, even at just sifting through and focusing your mind on things they might never achieve themselves. Is that valid to say?
1: Absolutely. So, Joel, who um, was responsible for some of the beautiful animations, told me a... A quote, I think it's from Steve Jobs, that a spreadsheet is like a bicycle for the mind. So it's, it's some kind of very simple system, but once you have it, you can do amazing things. I remember when I was a kid just playing around with a spreadsheet. You know, It kind of shows that I was a bit of a weird kid. Um, <laughs> but we can really imagine that, that AI provides a kind of bicycle for the mind, particularly in combinatorics and things. Often, we spend like days trying to prove some identity, and it's just wrong. And if something said at the beginning, oh, you're just wrong, Here's yeah.
0: a quick counter example, move on.
1: Move on, it would be it would simplify the process so much. It would, yeah, so that's what I'm looking forward to. Um,
0: Couple of quick questions, off. Final audience question, how does quantum computing change neural nets, question mark, then brackets, and is there a possibility for consciousness, close brackets, so let the, quick yes, no on the second question, but <laughs> is, is, quantum, is quantum computing possibly going to open up gigantic leaps forward here? Are they two completely separate fields? Will they intersect?
1: Uh, let me honestly answer that question by, I don't know, but maybe I can say one other thing, which is that when I was in first year at Sydney Uni doing calculus and linear algebra, I hated calculus and linear algebra. I really didn't like first year maths. And at the same time, I was reading Penrose's The Emperor's New Mind. I'm not sure if you know this book, but basically he's positing that there's some kind of quantum entanglement and this is uh, consciousness is arising from quantum entanglement. And there's no evidence that this is the case and um and it's kind of funny that i was like obsessed with this book oh my god quantum mechanics is like is giving me consciousness and at the same time i was ignoring my linear algebra and calculus lectures which were probably telling me a lot more about consciousness than than quantum mechanics (laughs) anyway yeah
0: (laughs) for 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 the lay audience if we went back and started again if we went back and started mathematics again from oh, scratch... I thought you meant the talk. No, not the talk. The talk's going very well, I think. <laughs> if we went back and started mathematics again from scratch, or if mm-hmm. we met an alien civilization that was doing mathematics that might be doing it in a slightly different language, would we rediscover the same math? Is there only one great mathematics out there that we are slowly unpeeling? Or if we'd started again, could we have uncovered a completely new mathematics?
1: So this is a wonderful question and you know, I'm sure you would always love, like we'd all love to think about this question. I certainly love thinking about this question. In the particular microcosm of chess, alpha zero rediscovers all of the known openings in chess and no other ones, which is amazing. So it's kind of evidence that like we've found all of the openings in chess. If we could say that about mathematics, I just think that would be extraordinary.
0: What would the network need to have stumbled upon and offered up for you for you to go yes that is intelligence
1: I mean I don't I, I think that move 37 is intelligence and I think that some of the stuff that the neural nets were were popping up at me about these problems is intelligence so in some sense I think that we're already there but you know it definitely can't do a lot of the tasks that we do We do very well, so we're not entirely there, but I definitely feel like you see glimmers of it.
0: Your mate on the unicycle hanging from the rope, who who you said is here, and you're into a little bit of that stuff (laughs) as well, aren't you? Just in wrapping this up, out of the world of maths, just quickly into your other great passion at the moment, Uh walking fly lines.
1: High lines. High lines. or slack lines, yeah.
0: Why? (laughs) What is it about that that just trips the trigger of one of the world's great mathematicians.
1: So one thing that's very interesting is that the, the part of the brain responsible for balance is just down here in the brain stem and it's an incredibly complicated part and it's like absolutely the opposite part to the part that's involved in kind of thinking hard about math problems. So maybe that, maybe that has something to do with it.
0: <laughs> just between you and me, is it shit scary? <laughs>
1: Uh, yeah, and I should say that I mean, the reason that I gave you this second slide is that there's few things that I find more inspirational than than a man that can that ride a unicycle across a highlight. I mean, it sounds like the most arbitrary thing in the world, but it's just remarkable to me. I think um,
0: most of us look at what you do and similarly think that is the intellectual equivalent of riding a unicycle, <laughs> possibly without a highlight. Please give Geordie a massive round of applause. Thank you so much, Mike. Fascinating, fascinating stuff.
1: Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast. For more
0: links, resources or the transcript, head to the Sydney Ideas website or subscribe to Sydney Ideas using your favourite podcast app.